Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to invite you to join me in the book of Jonah. In chapter 1. And we're just going to cover a couple of verses here this morning as we look at this amazing book. So often we think of Jonah as about a great whale. And we hone in on maybe that discussion, that picture, like, was it a whale? Was it just a great fish? What was it? Did it was Jonah really there for three days? Did he actually um, die while he was in the whale and come again, come back to life? Like, there's all kinds of questions surrounding this gigantic fish. Or even we can begin to talk about Jonah, the prophet, the, the man after whom the book is named, and about his attitude, and we certainly will. But ultimately, this book is not about a whale. It's not even about, ultimately, about Jonah. It's about a God whose relentless pursuit of undeserving sinners captivates our heart again and again. So as we walk through this book, we for sure will talk about Jonah. We will talk about the Ninevites. We'll even talk about a whale, but ultimately our goal is to look towards the God whose grace is scandalous. It's reckless. From our perspective, we can't understand this kind of grace. It seems as though God has lost his mind to demonstrate grace to the Ninevites, as wicked as they are, to Jonah, as stubborn as he is. And yet God's grace pursues. I want us to take a moment and look at the background of this story. My remote doesn't seem to be connecting, so if if you could help me out, Jen, I'd appreciate it. The the story begins in verse 1 with the simple phrase, The word of the Lord came came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. This is a really common phrase, the word of the Lord came. This is, the, this is how the prophets uh, introduce their message over and over and over again. If you read the prophets, you see this exact same terminology. The word of the Lord came too. But we're going to discover immediately that this, this story is much different than what we encounter with other prophets in the Old Testament. As far as Jonah goes, we know relatively little about him. We know that he is... One of God's prophets, he turns up in one other place in 2 Kings 14, verse 25. I think we have that on the slide. And it says this, that he, speaking of God, restored Israel's border from Lebohamoth as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, uh, had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, from Gath-Hefer. And so we learn from this passage that this wasn't Jonah's uh, first entry into the world of speaking the word of God. Jonah had been doing this already, and he brought messages, just as other prophets do, from God to the people. Now, but there are some unique things about this, and we see here, I got a little map that I want to throw up here, that shows exactly where 
uh, Jonah was, was from in relationship to uh, some of the other, uh, other prophets. It's, uh, I think it's down a little bit further. You see it. There it is. Okay, good deal. Thank you. Um, so Jonah was here from the north, and that's going to turn out to be kind of significant as the story goes on, because he grew up much closer to the Assyrian border than other prophets that God sent. George, as far as we understand prophets and where they were from, as far as the Old Testament lets us in on it, Jonah was the northernmost prophet out of any of God's prophets. You can see, like we talked about Jeremiah last summer, he's from way down in the south and in prophesied to Judah. Jonah is up here ministering to the northern kingdom. Now, if you remember, the, the northern and southern kingdoms split after the time of Solomon, and we're at a, we find Israel at a period where they have been, both, both Judah in the south and, and Israel in the north have been marching further and further away from God in their rebellion and disobedience. And prophets are like pulling their hair out, saying, listen, do you understand where this march is leading you, this, this rebellion? Do you understand where you're going? And up here in the north, though, they had been even more wicked than Judah. Judah was a little bit behind in their wickedness. They were, they were, kind, they were, they were heading there, though, as we learned from Jeremiah last summer. But you have Jonah up here, and he is, um, he's, he's this prophet. Uh, he was ministering at the same time as Amos and Hosea. So if you read... Uh, if you read Amos and Hosea and their messages, they're speaking uh, into the same scenario, the same culture, the same time frame as what Jonah is. And in, in, this, in this text, we learn that unlike the prophets, Amos and Hosea, who criticized the administration for its injustice and unfaithfulness, Jonah had actually supported Jeroboam's aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence. And that verse in 2 Kings 14.25 actually came true as Jonah prophesied. And, and that Jeroboam would, would sort of restore some of the land that the nation had lost. This was a time of relative peace and prosperity, and we'll explain that in just a minute. I, I want to kind of put it on, I don't know, I, timelines are really helpful for me. I love maps, I love timelines, and so I don't know how well you can read this, but we have here that the current king, he began to reign sometime in like uh, seven, between 1793 and 1781. This was Jeroboam II. And uh, Jeroboam began to reign and, and really was like a, a time, like a real reprieve um, from uh, the, the adversity and the many attacks that they had received uh, in, the, in the previous years and under the previous kings. God had allowed this time of resurgence. And it was directly tied in to the Assyrians to the north. Now, the Assyrians had been around for a while. Their empire was founded around 1300 B.C., so about 500 years by the time we get to Jonah. And so by the time Jeroboam II begins to reign, uh, uh, the Assyrians had a little bit of a break in their, um, in their great reign and their great power. They had been gaining steam in the, in the previous decades and had really begun to be a, a, a superpower. And uh, they, had, um, they had, in fact been um, threatening Israel's existence for over half a century. Uh, the, the, empire, uh, the Assyrian Empire began exacting a tribute from Israel during the, the reign of King Jehu, just ahead of Jeroboam II. And so Israel had been under their dominion, as it were, for some time. And they had been paying tribute so that they weren't going to be come in, and they, the Assyrians didn't have to come in and conquer them and destroy them. Well, all of this changed suddenly around 744, uh, because, uh, because one of the kings 
uh, really, uh, he, he had, I mean, I'm sorry, just before the time of Jonah, because one of the kings there in Assyria, he had, he had died, and there was all kinds of chaos, and so Assyria really was in a time of, like, disorder during the time of Jonah and the, the current king of Israel. So uh, they kind of eased off of them. And so Israel was able to restore and expand their borders a bit and sort of flex their muscles and be like, all right, we're back, we're back. And they were enjoying this good time. Assyria was out there looming, but they didn't seem like that big of a deal at this point. They had been kind of, kind of uh, relegated to the back burner, as it were. Well, what's going to happen, if, if you know the end of the story, is they actually, after the time of Jonah here in the 740s, they're going to have a resurgence. A new king comes along, establishes order. Hey, we're Assyria. We don't let anybody push us around. And by 722, they're going to come in and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and Jonah's homeland would be in just utter disarray. But here, in this time of Jonah's prophecy, things are going pretty smoothly. They're going pretty well for the nation of Israel, even though they were not turning to God. And so we have here this story of of Jonah, his prophecy, his writing during this time. This is a beautiful and captivating story. It's not a simple story. It's complex. There are many nuances. There's a lot happening here uh, behind the scenes, but it's an incredible story. There's nothing like it in in the Old Testament. All the other prophets of of Scripture, I mean, you can read any of the other prophets, they were all speaking messages of judgment, of repentance, some of of hope, and, and one day God's future restoration, but none of them are stories like this, and none of these prophets become intricately entwined in the story. And none of them become the bad guy in the story like Jonah is about to become. So what we have here, uh, uh, secondly, is God's command. There's the simple expression of God's will. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up. And go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. The command was clear. Get up and go preach. Now again, this in and of itself was really unique, because sometimes prophets did speak against the surrounding nations. Most prophets were speaking to Israel, right? Israel and Judah. But sometimes they did speak to the surrounding nations. But here's the thing. They always they always threw the messages out there. They wrote them down and they were sent out in letters. Jonah is unique. As far as I'm aware, there is no other prophet who is called to leave his homeland and go preach a judgment of, me- of, of uh, a message of judgment to another foreign nation. So you can see right off the bat, Jonah's a little bit like, mm, this seems a little bit out of my comfort zone. I'm not making excuses for Jonah, but I want to understand exactly why he did what he did. And we're not going to answer that question fully today, but as we walk through this book, we'll get a a pretty clear picture by the end. As far as Nineveh goes, God says in verse 2, the text here does not tell us a lot about Nineveh, especially at the outset. He says, their evil has come up before me. I want to show you exactly where Nineveh is on a map here. So Nineveh is way up here. So remember... Uh, he, Jonah is from down in this area in northern Israel, and Nineveh is way over here, okay? Jonah is called to go to this prominent 
Assyrian city. In fact, it was most likely the capital. It was like the military capital of Assyria. Uh, Nineveh, what, uh, in, in fact, it's, and, and, if, and if, you're, uh, if you're not really familiar with your um, modern-day uh, geography, it's, it's located in northern Iraq, um, right near present-day Mosul. You'll, you've, you've heard that on the news over the last 15 or 20 years quite a bit. Um, it was a strategic and an inhumanely violent city. We've already said Assyria has been around a while. What we didn't say is how they gained their power, and it was simply through brute military strength and intimidation. And what they would do is they would, they would go into a surrounding nation, and they would absolutely wipe them out in the most violent way possible. In fact, they've uncovered um, uh, tablets that, that during excavations, and there's actually a great deal not only of writings but of, of pictures that you can see depicted. And I won't go into great detail because there's a lot of age varieties um, here today, but I won't go into great detail. But these, these tablets even picture some of the violent and the atrocity uh, the atrocious things that they did their enemies. And so what happens was they would be so utterly um, uh, cruel and wicked that surrounding nations would hear the stories. And rather than Assyria having to go in and say, okay, I'm going to conquer you too, and I'm going to... Nations were like, okay, we'll pay you tribute. We heard the stories. You don't even have to bring your military over here, worry about all that expense and time and manpower. We're just going to go ahead and say, you're the boss now. And they, they developed that as a sort of strategy. They realized that the more brutal and wicked they were to their enemies, the more that, that reputation got around. And the less fighting they actually had to do because people just crumbled at their feet. They were a notoriously wicked and violent people. The emperor Shalmaneser III, who was the, the king right before the time of Jonah, was known to... Uh, these tablets depict his, the torture, dismembering, decapitations of enemy in such grisly detail. One writer says, Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. And so, <laughs> with that as the background, and you read Jonah 1, verse 2, and God says, their evil has come up before me, you can kind of say to yourself, yeah, I would think so. You're like, okay, God, we get it. We get that you're upset about this. This is just, it was taking wickedness to an entirely different level. And so that's God's command for Jonah to go, to go to this city. And so you can understand maybe a little bit as what we read in verse 3. So Jonah got up to flee. <laughs> and the play on words is intentional in the Hebrew. God says, Get up and go. And Jonah got up and went. You know, sometimes we hear God's command and we, we, like, we think like partial obedience will do. Well, I heard the get up part. You said to get up, right, God? You said to move. You said to, to go do something. And so I'm going to go do something. But sometimes it's not always exactly what God has called us to do. But Jonah wasn't even really close here in his obedience, disobedience scale. Jonah got up all right, but Jonah ran. Now, I don't know about you. I, maybe, maybe it's just me. I've been sitting with this for a, a while now, but I totally get it. 
when you hear and read the stories of what Nineveh was like, and you're in the midst of a time of prosperity, the borders have expanded, no one's crushing you. It, Jonah's messages of like judgment and bad news, he's, had, he's been able to take a little break from that. Probably has a nice little posh place out in the country. Able to kick his feet up, maybe a few servants, nice little swimming pool, satellite TV, just kind of, he's kind of like that prophet in semi-retirement, living his good life. And all of a sudden, God says, hey, I need you to get back to work. And he's like, okay, all right, what kind of message shall I deliver today? Well, first of all, it's going to take you months of travel to get there. Oh, hmm, not really working with my schedule, God. Where in Israel does it take me months to get to? Well, it's not in Israel. It's not, it's not in Israel. That's, that's my job. I only work in Israel. That's my territory. Northern kingdom. That's, that was my assignment. And God says, it's actually, it's actually Nineveh. Like the last place on earth that you would want to be called. Before we begin, like, before we begin to scoff at Jonah, like we're, like we're not going to get just how scandalous and how amazing God's grace is until we see the Jonah in each of our hearts. See, because all of us, I would venture to guess, all of us have a Nineveh. God, I'll do this. I'll give this up. I'll go here. I'm willing to even say this to this person. Give my time, give my money, take this message. But we all have certain limits. We may not come out and say them directly to God. We make jokes like, hey, never say never or whatever, you know. But like deep down, we're like, oh, there's no way. There's no way I would go to that person. There's no way I would go to that place. There's no way I would give this up. Jonah got up to flee. The text doesn't tell us exactly why at this point, but we're already starting to get the idea. There's several layers to Jonah's contempt for the Ninevites and why he didn't want to go. And that will be unpacked as we walk our way through this book. And so Jonah fled. If you saw it on the, on the map here, so Jonah was here, this is kind of a little different scale, and so Jonah was here in Gath Heifer, that was his hometown. <laughs> Nineveh's here, and Jonah went down to Joppa, it's, it's a port city, in fact, you can still go there today, it's just adjacent to modern day Tel Aviv, if you're in Israel. And Jonah boarded a ship for Tarshish, now nobody knows where Tarshish was, scholars and archaeologists have never been able to pinpoint, but he, we know he was getting on a boat, and we know he was going west the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. We don't really need to know where Tarshish was to get the point. Jonah's like, Jonah like, I am getting out of here, and I want as far away from this mission as I possibly can. And what's even more heartbreaking, what's even more heartbreaking is look carefully at verse 3. It says, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. 
And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. It's not an accident that that phrase is in there twice. Jonah was not simply running from a mission. He was running from God. He should have known Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your presence, David said. And David rejoiced in that. It was a psalm of worship. I can't go anywhere, God, but, but that you're there. You're always with me. Psalm 23, right? Through the valley of the shadow of death, we have the presence of God. What a glorious thing when you want God there. The presence of God becomes a terrifying thing when you don't want him there. When we're trying to find the darkness, the light becomes annoying at best. Jonah wasn't just running from God's mission. Jonah was running from the presence of God. You see, when we, when we dig our heels in and say, God, no, you're not just running from a job, a task, you're running from God himself. You see, God doesn't call us to hard things just to make our lives miserable. You know this about God, right? He's a good God. He doesn't call you and I to go have that hard conversation or to give up something that's really important to us because he's like, ah, ha, 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 I want to meddle with their happiness. He knows that you need that, that I need that. And he knew in this moment, not only did the Ninevites need to hear this message, as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, but Jonah needed the Ninevites. He needed to humble himself, get rid of his hatred and his prejudice and his self-centeredness and his pride. He needed this, and he ran. Jonah's running from God only scratches the surface of the wickedness that lies in his heart and in ours. Years ago, Abraham Kuyper, a journalist and Reformed theologian and one time prime minister of the Netherlands summarized our, our condition well. He said, our heart is continually inclined to rebel against the Lord our God. So ready to rebel that, oh, so gladly were it but for a single day we would take from his hands the reins of his supreme rule, imagining that we would manage things far better and direct them far more effectively than God. How about you this morning? Are you doing some running of your own? You see, sometimes we justify our running because we try to surround it with doing other good things. It's like, let's say, men, your wives really want to have a deep, heartfelt conversation with you. They just want you to give some time at the end of the day and engage them deeply without the phone, without just talking about surface things. And you refuse to do that, but you say, listen, I, I, I fixed the broken door and I mowed the lawn and I went to work today to help pay the mortgage. What more do you want from me? Well, they long for your heart. They long for that engagement, right? You're doing all these other things that make it look like, hey, I'm, 
I'm doing all right here, but the one thing that's necessary, you refuse to do. And, and Jonah here can, can say, listen, I'm a prophet, I've, been, I've got a good track record. And God says, no, but I'm asking you to do this. Well, but I'd be willing to do this over here. No, 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 that's not what I'm asking. And you see, sometimes we can couch our disobedience in other things, other, other areas of obedience. Well, God, I go to church every Sunday. I, I make sure I, I read the scriptures and pray every day. I, I'm, I'm not cheating on my spouse. Come on, God. How big can this thing over here really be? Even if you're jogging, it's still running. Partial obedience is still disobedience. You see, sometimes the ship to Tarshish looks oh so attractive. The way out, we can even spiritualize it. The passage to get us out of doing what God has called us to do in that moment can look so attractive. You see, there's a Jonah inside of each and every one of us. Maybe it's in a big way. Maybe you're running from God and you're full on running from God. Like, I don't want anything to do with you, God. That sort of a run. Maybe our run is a little bit more spiritual sounding. I'm still doing some of these other good things so I can justify disobeying God in this area. My brothers and sisters... Our challenge this morning is to remind you that there's no escaping the presence of God. And for some of you this morning, that is unbelievably good news. But some of you are in a place this morning where just like Jonah, that's terrifying. Because here's the thing. Anytime you want to go, there's almost always a ship. There's almost always somebody who will say, well, yeah, I wouldn't do that either. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. There will almost always be someone there to cheer you on and say, yeah, God couldn't have really meant that. I want to finish, though, on a positive note with the first words of the very next sentence. But the Lord. Such simple Three simple words in the English language, but profoundly life-changing. God was not going to let him run, and he's not going to let you run this morning either. No matter what it is, no matter how far you go, he's not going to write you off. He's not going to quit on you. He's not going to say, forget that guy, forget that lady. I got, I got bigger fish to fry. I got people who are way less of a hassle. But the Lord. This is the problem that will confront us in this book, the mystery of God's mercy. It's a theological problem, and at the same time, it's a heart problem. Tim Keller has said, unless Jonah can see his own sin and see himself as living wholly by the mercy of God, he will never understand how God can be merciful to evil people and still be just and faithful. The story of Jonah with all of its twists and turns is about how God takes Jonah, sometimes by the hand and other times by the scruff of the neck, to show him these things. 
Jonah runs and runs and runs and runs. Even though he uses multiple strategies, the Lord is always a step ahead. God varies his strategies too and continually extends his mercy to us in new ways, even though we neither understand his mercy nor deserve his mercy. We could simply end today's message with the story of Jonah's failure and outright disobedience. But the fact is that that's not the end of the story. And I want you to know this morning that your failure is not the end of your story either. Your disobedience, your running, whatever that might look like, it's not the final chapter. Because as long as you and I have breath to, to breathe, have air in our lungs, there is always the phrase, but the Lord. This is the story of Jonah and the story of God's scandalous grace. The story of God's grace shown to a wicked, wicked, evil nation. But the focus at the end of the story isn't Nineveh and their unbelievable repentance. Focus at the end of the story is God's grace and mercy toward Jonah, one of God's own. We know, standing here on the other side of the cross, that this is the gospel. This is what Jesus came to earth for, to pursue sinners who were dead set against him, who were running as far away as they possibly could, who were looking for ships to Tarshish left and right. And that's our story. But I pray that that's, that's not where our story stays. For each of us, my prayer is that we understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to die for that rebellion, for that running, and that he rose again to show that he has victory and power over death, and that through faith in Jesus, we might stop running. We might turn to him. My brothers and sisters, this morning, you can stop running. Embrace and live in the scandalous and outrageous grace of God. As we conclude here today, we would love to pray with you. If you have anything to pray about, there'll be a few of us up here who'd love to, love to spend some time in prayer. I just want to share with you this benediction, and then we will close. Heavenly Father, we, we need this grace more than we can ever imagine. We need your mercy more than we can ever imagine. And it is great, this, your mercy and your grace and your kindness and your goodness is far more than we could ever fathom. And as we dive down into the depths of your love and the way that you pursue lost sinners in the study of this book, Lord, I pray that our eyes would be awakened in a fresh way to how you have pursued us. Maybe show us ways in which we've been, we've been pursued and we just weren't even aware of it. Convict us of ways that we're running now, especially if, if we're Christians who have couched our running, cloaked it in spirituality or tried to cover it up by, with an array of other acts of obedience to draw attention away from this area over here, whether it's outright sin 
doing something that is in violation of your law and your commandments. Or, or maybe it's this inner calling, this sense of you're, you're supposed to be involved in this ministry or you're supposed to be engaging with this person and we've just refused to obey. Oh, Lord, convict us of that. And may we see your pursuit not as something to be feared, but as the Father's open arms in which we can rejoice. Your goodness and kindness, Romans says, leads us to repentance. God, speak to each of our hearts today. We thank you. Now, the Father who chose you, the Son who bought you, and the Spirit who teaches you, may goodness and mercy pursue you all the days of your life and preserve your life, though you walk in the midst of trouble. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May God bless you.